Right, guys, hey, uh, welcome to the Halo Drop. Excited to be here with Sunil and Vishal for an exciting episode with Vank Shukla. Vank is a general partner at Monta Vista Capital. They've invested at the seed stage in some amazing companies, including Third Love, Ovation, and Captivate, bringing a hands-on operational approach to the first years of a company's life. With a varied background in sales, marketing, and general management, Vank has a proven track record of leading companies through rapid growth. He has worked as a senior marketing executive in large technology companies in Silicon Valley and has been involved with numerous early-stage companies as an executive, investor, board member, and advisor. As president of the Indus Entrepreneur, also known as Ty, he presides over one of the most powerful networks focused on technology startups in Silicon Valley. Ty, a 27-year-old nonprofit, exists to promote wealth creation through entrepreneurship, and its membership includes the entire ecosystem. VCs, successful entrepreneurs, senior execs, and public companies, as well as budding entrepreneurs. Ty is a 15,000-strong organization based across the globe in 61 chapters across 14 countries. Many of the most influential companies and founders have used Ty as a springboard for their projects, careers, and companies. I've personally spoken at TyCon, the annual conference, which will be virtual for 2021, and I know Vishal and Sunil have also spoken at and participated at Ty. Vank has also played a part in Startup India Initiative, which was designed to make it easier to start up, fund, and grow a company in India. Within Thai, Vank started a CIO forum, which connects CIOs from companies such as Costco, Walmart, Clorox, GE Capital, HCA Healthcare, and others with the most innovative B2B companies in the Valley. Vank is also the founding chair and active member of the Thai Angels, which is one of the most active angel investor groups in the Valley with 140 members and 26 investments in the last three years, mostly in the B2B space. Vank holds an MBA from MIT Sloan School of Management and uh, BSEE from NIT in India. We're super excited to have Vank join us today. Take us back to the beginning, you know, tell us about your journey from getting your, your engineering degree in India and, and coming to the U.S. for your MBA. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I was a, I was a very reluctant of this thing to U.S. Uh, when I was a kid, somebody showed up in our house and they we were all fascinated about man landing on moon. And that gentleman said, this is all a marvel of electronics engineering. So that day I decided I wanted to be an electronics engineer and nobody in my family was was ever an engineer. So couldn't get any, didn't get any guidance. So my local college, uh, NIT, gave me electronics and IITs did not give me electronics. They gave me other branches. So I didn't go to IIT. I chose the local uh, the uh, NIT that gave me electronics. But after going through that, I realized uh, in fourth year, final year, I realized that uh, that there was no company in India doing original electronics design. There was only one Indian Space Research Organization in Kerala. But I had done my internship there three months. And uh, after three months of eating dosa in Italy every day, I said, I'm not going to come and spend my life here. So I said, the only place that did original electronic design, you know, I said, that's not good fit for me. So then I didn't know what to do. So I went back to what my family did, uh, which is to join bureaucracy. So I took the civil service exam and uh, joined the bureaucracy. And uh, my sister was here and she kept asking me to come here, saying that, hey, every electronics person wants to be in Silicon Valley. Why aren't you here? 
and I didn't want to. So I stayed in India, but uh, as luck would have it, I got married to arranged marriage. And my wife, you see, did her undergrad from Berkeley. Uh, her parents were here. She did undergrad. And everybody assured me that she knows that uh, you are, you have no intention of coming to U.S. So she will come to India after, after getting married. And then I discovered after getting married that she had zero intention of coming to India. So, you know, we lived apart for two years and eventually I compromised and I said, I'll come here to do my MBA and then we'll decide. But that was the beginning of a slippery slope and uh, she won. Fair enough. And then, um, you know, after after getting your MBA at MIT, uh, where did you kind of go? What company and how was that progression? Yeah, you know, I thought coming from India, I had never worked in private uh, companies and stuff. So I had no idea. So I thought I was good at math. So I started interviewing for finance positions in different companies and interviewed at IBM, United, AT&T, and all these companies. And every company after one or two rounds will ask me if I wanted to talk to their marketing or marketing department. So I got really confused. So I came and talked to my placement office and, and she said, yeah, maybe you should talk to some marketing sales kind of a thing. So she arranged an interview with Teradyne. And they gave me an offer quickly. So so I joined, I found Teradyne to be, you know, the sales and marketing to be far more interesting. And uh, I spent, you know, the first three, four years in sales and uh, and then, uh, you know, joined Cadence. And after that, it's been a, the twist and turn that a career takes as he has been doing that. But, you know, it was, I remember telling my boss when he hired me for that marketing sales position that, he, at Teradyne, I said, you really screw up. You really screwed up. You hired a guy who has never worked in US, who hired a guy who hasn't done any electronics. You hired a guy who knows nothing about sales. I said, I said, you really screwed up, Jeff. And he said, well, we'll see, we'll see. And it turned out that I was the most successful sales guy in that organization and I had never sold before. The whole industry was going through a massive, you know, this turn, which is a, Teradyne, which was, you know, semiconductor testing. The whole industry was going through a massive shift where a lot of it was shifting towards front-end, you know, software-based testing. And they wanted to be a present in software, but they were a hardware company. And all the other sales and marketing people were so steeped in their hardware-oriented uh, mindset that, uh, and I had no such bias because I knew nothing about it. So I did what I thought was needed, you see, to, to win the business. And I turned out to be the most su- successful sales guy they had. But it was an amazing experience. I mean, starting from sales, I think uh, you become far more effective in marketing if you have paid your dues and started out in sales. You really know when I moved to marketing, Anytime I would come up with some kind of a plan of positioning or promotion or something or presentation, I would always have this uh, this image of this most curmudgeonly customer in my mind. I said, if Brad were listening to it, how would he react to it? And unless I could convince myself that Brad would react positively to it, I would not let that be part of my my marketing program. <laughs> it helped a lot, actually. <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like being able to sell is is something that you you're right you need to be able to do it at any any role across the organization and all throughout your career it feels like it's always a constant sell so after you went off um i believe you you started you started your own company right 
No, no, no. Actually, I was in Cadence. From Teradyne, I went to Cadence. And uh, Cadence history worked out really, really well for me. And then while I was in Cadence, you see, I was uh, uh, heading the East Coast. Uh, there's a division. And I did some actually uh, analysis of how I spend my time. It turned out I was spending about 80% of my time either in a meeting, uh, preparing for a meeting, or following up from a meeting. And another 15% of my time dealing with all the employee HR issues. And only 5% of the time what I really enjoyed, which is meeting customers and talking about products and stuff like that. So I said, this is a terrible way of uh, doing this. So meanwhile, Ambit was, uh, was, uh, was pursuing me. And uh, so I decided to go join Rajiv Madhavan, you see, at Ambit. That turned out to be pretty good. I mean, the very first startup, we hit a, we hit a home run. Right, you guys exited for a little over 260, right? Yeah, all in cash. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I guess, can you talk a little bit about what, what made you join that company? Because I think there were a lot of startups around the same time. Were there some things that made you kind of follow what Rajiv was saying? Or what was that framework you used before knowing when to quit and, and join a new company? He was the most persistent. And, uh, you know, it's good to be wanted. I was tired of this anyway. And there was another company actually uh, called Chronologic. It was a spin-off of Verilog. And I really wanted to join that initially. But the board members of that company uh, would not listen. They wanted to sell the company very quickly. And I, I thought that they had a they had a huge long-term kind of potential. And and I said, they asked me, I said, if you're so confident, would you sacrifice your salary? I said, yeah, give me zero in cash, give all my compensation in equity. And if you're getting a $30 million offer now, give me zero salary and I'll get 25%, 20% of everything above 30 million that you get. But uh, these guys didn't listen to me, and they went ahead and sold it. And now that is part of uh, Synopsys, uh, you know, verification division, very large, which makes something like three hundred million dollars a year. So that was my first choice, actually. But uh, and then Rajiv came along, and he was really persistent. Uh, so I thought, well, try that, and it worked out really, really well. That's awesome. And then after after Ambit, you know, you kind of uh, maybe decided to give your your hand at. Uh the mobile app space? Yeah, yeah. It was every path. This was 1998. And I had invested in this startup. There are four people that I knew. Uh, so I'd invested in them and they and they really wanted to scale up. They wanted to raise more money. They wanted to scale up and they were not getting funded. So they talked to me and uh, I got excited about it. You know, first time CEO kind of thing. I, and I loved it. I jumped into it. We raised a lot of money. In those days, I raised something like $100 million for that. And we were the next big thing, you know, in those things. And Wall Street, Wall Street Journal and all those, we, we used to write about us. But uh, I learned a very, very valuable lesson there that uh, you can, you know, as soon as the 2001 crash happened, all the CIOs that we were talking about uh, for mobilizing their websites and creating mobile applications for them, they all started saying he come to us next quarter. If uh, every time you talk to someone and they say next quarter, uh, as a startup, that's a really, really bad position to be in. And then we realized that, uh, that even if the customer is willing to pay you money today, that doesn't mean that there's a market for it. All that it means is that there are some early adopters, some visionaries who are willing to put some money, 
but that does not mean that there's a market for it. We were very lucky. See, we had about six, seven customers, including E-Trade, and E-Trade was giving us one and a half million dollars a year uh, those days. So you would think that there's a product market fit. You have six customers, you have paying customers, you are getting about two million, two to two and a half million in revenue. So product market fit is there. Uh, two thousand one crash clearly it clarified that early adopters doesn't mean that the market exists. It just means that there are early adopters who are willing to spend some money in trying out these newfangled ideas. I think that's a, a great point. I guess, how do you, you know, maybe just zooming into that point, right? It's like, how do you go past, like, what are the next steps that, you know, entrepreneurs should think about or founders should think about when you're, you're getting customers that pay you, but, you know, perhaps that's not, you're not looking at that as, as validation for that entire product market fit, perhaps. This is a really, really a tough one. I mean, I have, I have sort of spent a lot of time thinking about that, that how could I have uh, seen it any other way? And everybody tells you that the ultimate validation is uh, someone willing to pay you money. And if you have not just one, but two, but three and four or five of them paying money, it's very easy to believe that you have product market fit. It's very easy. And the market, rest of the market believe that. All the magazines, all the analysts, everybody was writing that uh, on the mobile stuff. Things were going to move to mobile. You said the next big thing. So, uh, you know, so there was an amazing unanimity on that. So it's very hard to believe that you didn't have a product market fit or the market wasn't there. And so the best, this thing, explanation, but not explanation, the best commentary I I saw on that was uh, from Steve Blank. I don't know if you guys have heard of Steve Blank. He was on a, a board in, in Ambit. Uh, so that's how I got to know him. Brilliant guy. He wrote this book called Four Steps to Epiphany. And it is his, con- this lean methodology is really his contribution to startup. So one of the things he mentions in his book is that it says, you know, before you write a simple line of code, you should go talk to 30 potential customers and ask them three, four questions that, A, do you do you see this as a problem today? And if you do, are you spending money to solve that problem today? And three, are you happy see, with, the, with the results? But he says, but unless you talk to these 30 people, it's very hard you see, to know that the market exists. And if you are doing something completely brand new, completely brand new that people see, can't even envision, then it's a different challenge. That's where the Steve Jobs thing, right? They don't ask the customer uh, you know, what they want. Just give them see, what, what they need. But in most other things, especially in, in business-to-business stuff, what you're doing is trying to address you see, a problem that they have even if they have not articulated it, but the problem they have and finding a solution for that problem. The only way to do that is to talk to a lot of people you see, to, to figure it out. But even then, I think it's very easy to get uh, seduced by, by four or five customers paying you money. It's a very, very hard problem, actually. So I don't have a simple answer for that. Got it. No, no, that, that's super helpful. And then so I, I guess then when, when you left to start a new company, um, which was also kind of a challenging time for electronic design automation. Can you walk us through kind of the genesis for your next company and what was your kind of your pitch to investors? You know, uh, then see, after every part, they say Rajiv again pulled me into Magma. He had already done Magma and he's taken the complete public. It was, the stock was stuck at four or five and he knew I could do marketing. So he pulled me in and I worked out an arrangement where 
I get fully vested is in two years. So just simple blocking and tackling in, in marketing. And we took the stock from six, you know, five to 29. And that's when I sold my position and got out of the company. And then we started working on this new SIM. And uh, <laughs> new SIM was another uh, valuable lesson. And my, le- my lesson was that I got into that company because one of the VCs that I respected a lot, I'd worked for before in Cadence. He called me, he says, Venk, I heard that you left Magma. You really ought to do this company. I like it so much. I put 250K of my personal money into this thing. So I said, oh, Lucio is saying is Lucio knows everything technology. So I said, okay. So I met the founder. I joined the company, raised money. And then I discovered that it's not a company. It's a science experiment. And uh, meanwhile, I'd already raised money from the VCs. And VCs gave money based on my credibility, not on what uh, the product or this thing was saying. Um, One VC told me that, listen, I don't understand anything of what you're saying. I have no idea. But if you are willing to spend two, three years of your time, I'll give you money. (laughs) And so that was... uh, uh, So once you raise money, now you have moral uh, responsibility to see it through. And that was a really, that was a very, very valuable learning experience that don't jump into it until you have done your due diligence to see about about the product, the technology, the company, the founders and stuff like that. So, so that was not a very happy experience. Got it. Yeah. I can only, I can only imagine. Uh, I guess at what point did you, what did you realize that with Newsom, you know, you had to make a change quickly? Like what, what was the, what was sort of the catalyst for you and, and how did you guys navigate that? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, once you raise money and now you are stuck. So along the way, you discover that uh, this is not a solvable problem, that uh, whatever this guy's PhD thesis at Stanford was, uh, was, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's not a workable thing. So then you try to find a home for that company so that you can get a decent, graceful exit. Uh, I did find a home for it, but investors didn't get their money back, uh, didn't get most of their money back, let's put it this way. Got it. And then um, I think kind of moving on from there, then you decided to kind of start backing companies and entrepreneurs. I mean, clearly you had been an angel investor for quite some time. What made you sort of think about, hey, there's an opportunity here to start, you know, funding funding companies and, and maybe becoming a VC? So one of my learnings from NewSim was not to jump into anything. And I told my wife that uh, I'm going to stay home for 18 months, that I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to look around and see see what I like, but I got bored very quickly. So I started this angel group within Thai uh, called Thai Angels. And I was surprised to discover that despite all the talk of Thai helping entrepreneurs, they didn't do one thing that all entrepreneurs need, which is money. So I set up this angel group and we started doing this. I ran it for three years. And what I found was that uh, uh, it was really fun. You know, it was fun that you're meeting the most optimistic people in the world. Most of them are irrationally optimistic, but it doesn't matter. Their enthusiasm is it rubs off on you. And the second thing was that everyone who walked through that door was an expert in some area. And they'll spend time patiently educating you on what they know because they want your money. And I thought that was an incredibly efficient way for me to learn a little bit about a whole lot of things. If you are intellectually curious, then being an investor in a VC is is really amazing experience. You know, I'm I'm curious. I'm if someone wants to tell me, uh, give me ten minutes lecture on the mating habits of gorillas, I'll listen to you. 
So I found it really fascinating. And it turned out that in those three years that the group invested in 25 companies, I wrote only five checks, but those five companies turned out to be the best of those 25. And nobody else in that 100-person investor group got those five right. So I felt that uh, I have 100% hit rate here. Maybe I should, uh, and I'm having, I'm really, really having fun doing this thing. So I should, I should become a VC. So that's why I went to my friends. I said, give me money. There's a chance that you'd lose the money, but, but there's also a chance that you'll make some money. So, you know, it was a very easy conversation. I think uh, raising first fund was really, really easy. I mean, you know, this is within two months, you see, I had 10 million committed. Uh, it was a very efficient conversation. You meet some friend for for coffee and you say, hey, give me money. And he said, no. Said, okay, good. So in, in 45 minutes, you have a yes or no answer and you move on. And it was it was really, really simple. So I said, okay, I raised 10 billion. I started investing. That's how, uh, that's how you see, it, it worked. And the first fund has done, uh, has done really well. Amazing. Congrats on all, all picking all those winners. Um, hopefully you've got another one here. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, I used to be worried about you guys until I, about three, four years ago, I spent, I came and spent time in, in your office and uh, I had all long list of things that, you see, I thought I'll advise you on. And then I, then I asked you a question and everything that, uh, everything that I thought you guys should do, you guys were already doing it. So ever since that time, see, I've been a lot more relaxed to see about, I say it's just a matter of time before something good happens here. So I've, I've, I've not been harassing you after that. No, no worries. Uh, definitely appreciate all that, the advice and guidance. I guess, you know, with that said, um, many of the companies that you've both founded and are currently working with have a presence in India and the US. How do you think about bridging the, the two countries and what are, you know, what advantage is that for startups? No, the to have a engineering team there is is of immense benefit because you cut down the cost significantly, and uh, uh, you of course see the challenges here of managing the development is in two geographies is a big big challenge, and some of the startups you see have done it you see by locating all the key things where they need a lot of close interaction either here or in India. So dividing the workforce that way, and that works, I see, very well. If you are, if you are smart about how you divide the work between the two geographies, but now I think it's uh, we have come to a point where, you know, I think uh, companies that know how to manage remote development will have a huge, huge strategic advantage compared to others, because uh, you know with this pandemic, you see, that thing became a, uh, you know. Companies that were able to manage that thing well are the ones that you are much further ahead right now. So going forward, I think it won't be a choice. I think this would be a, a mandate. And the better you do it, managing the distributed remote team, the better off you are. And you guys have you guys have a very distributed team, right? Um, yeah, we do. So uh, um, now now everyone's from home, but we we do have a team in in Chandigarh, and and we have a, an engineering team out in. Um, in Eastern Europe as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think this is this is more and more becoming the norm. I think the companies that do it well, you know, will have an advantage. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, you're an advisor and the only Indian not based in India for Startup India. So can you tell us about how you got involved and what Startup India is trying to achieve? And what are some of the main benefits of startups going to the Startup India route versus traditional? 
So it's, you know, the genesis is that uh, I had invited Prime Minister of India to visit, Prime Minister of India to come to Silicon Valley. And we had a conversation with, uh, you know, we had invited about 200 CXOs for a dinner. So on stage with me were CEOs of Adobe, Cisco, Qualcomm, Microsoft, Google, Prime Minister and me. But before we came on the stage, we were having a conversation, the seven of us in Prime Minister's suite. And some CEO asked him a question about some policy and Prime Minister said that uh, we use the exact same policy, no discrimination. Our policy apply universally to each and every company. So I said, excuse me, sir, if you treat a three-month-old boy the same as a 30-year-old man, guess who is going to suffer? So he got it. I mean, he turned to one of the officers there and says, please spend time with him tomorrow. And then we started to working on this idea that there needs to be a dedicated set of policies which are geared towards, uh, you know, removing roadblocks from uh, from the path of startups because all the policies, all the regulations in India have been set up for the last 70 years to manage and control bigger companies. So I worked on it to see with that, uh, you know, advisor for, for that officer for about three, four months. And uh, most of my advice was not taken into account, but some of them did make it there. And then the Startup India was launched with great fanfare in, in January of 2016. And uh, it obviously captured the imagination of people in India. And today, as of today, there are 45 unicorns in India, just you know, starting with nothing in five years. Now there are 45 unicorns and another 35 sunicorns. And uh, this is... Uh, this is despite that the fact that that the laws and the regulations and the compliance burden is not the same as US. It's a lot worse. But it tells you about two things. One is the the you know the quality of talent that exists in India, and the talent and ambition. And second, that the global capital is looking for growth opportunities. I mean there are trillions of dollars earning negative interest rate all over the world because the growth opportunities just aren't there as much. And India is one of those rare places where growth exists. So so there are rush of global capital coming to India. And India has barely scratched the surface. I think, uh, you know, India should not be happy with 45 uh, unicorns. There's no reason why India should not have 500 unicorns today. And a lot of it has to do with... Uh, Again, you see, with the rules and regulations and, and the com- burden of compliance. So I used to write very extensively about it, criticizing these policies in newspapers in India. And uh, so I guess the government thought that the, the best way for them to, to prevent me from writing all these things is to bring me inside. So they set up this startup advisory council uh, in January. And uh, the prominent VCs and prominent entrepreneurs of India are on that thing. And I'm the only one who is not from India on that uh, on that panel. We just had our first meeting uh, about two weeks ago and uh, where the commerce minister presided over it and he was there for three months, entire three three hours. And very, very encouraging. I think really, really encouraging. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious to me that government of India is really, really serious about this. And uh, they're going to use this forum, you see, to to identify top ideas and then they see, you know, work on implementing them, you see, you know, on a quarterly basis. We'll beat this, we'll meet every quarter to review progress and stuff. So that's a, it's very, very exciting. I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about uh, what's going to happen to India in the future. 
Oh, that's amazing. And when, when thinking about, um, you know, compliance and regulation, you know, here in the U.S., you can start up a company, you know, in Delaware within 24 hours, right? In India, it takes something like 60 days. How, how do you think the Startup Council is going to help streamline, you know, some of these, some of these processes to make it easier? Like, why, why should somebody go this, you know, the Startup India route versus maybe a traditional um, startup route in India? So whether you go, uh, whether you follow the startup India thing, uh, you know, template or not, you have to follow the same regulations. Regulations apply to everyone. That's just the legacy of seventy years of negligence uh, that people are trying to undo. So the bankruptcy laws for startups are no different than bankruptcy laws for a big ten thousand person company. The labor laws, the employment laws, the taxation laws, all of those things is here you know, one by one by one is they are, you know, are facing scrutiny and they're getting addressed. It takes time. I think there's a, in sociology, there's a, there's a concept of path dependence, which means that where you are and where you're going to be depends a lot on where you're coming from. So uh, where India is coming from is uh, 200 years of colonialism and 70 years of distrust of entrepreneur. The first governments that... Uh, that were in power in India, they believed in socialism. And socialism really is control of the major distinctions of economy by the government and control of the entrepreneur. I mean, I think unfortunate history is that that India got colonized by by, uh, East India Company, which essentially was a a commercial enterprise. And uh, over time, see, they, they became more and more and more powerful and they controlled the country. And that thing is so deeply embedded in the psyche of, uh, was embedded in the psyche of India, that India started out with a basic distrust of private sector, a basic distrust of entrepreneurship. And it has taken 70 years to disabuse the country of that notion that entrepreneurs are evil people or entrepreneurs you see, are out to uh, take advantage you see, of the rest of them. So... But, you know, finally we are there. I think that mindset is finally gone. And uh, now it's just a matter of working, you know, peeling the layers of onion one by one by one. What are some of the common themes you're seeing in founders these days and how these themes um, evolved and, you know, who do you see doing it right? The common themes I see of, uh, of the investors now, one thing I noticed compared to my days is that entrepreneurs are far more informed now. There are far more avenues you know, for learning available online as well as offline. Especially in the Indian community, what I find is that every Indian knows at least two, three very successful entrepreneurs, something that didn't exist, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So because of that, you know, there's a lot of tribal knowledge, you know, which was exclusive preserve of few people. Now it's so widely available that the entrepreneurs are far better mentally prepared in terms of uh, this entrepreneurial journey. And I, they understand the nuts and bolts is of, you know, setting up a company and, you know, ownership and dilution and, and all those things. That's something that didn't exist before. So I think it's made the job of the of the VCs also a little easier that people who come to you are far more informed, they're far more prepared, they have, they have a much better understanding of a lot of these issues. No, that's awesome. Thanks. So the next part is uh, the rapid fire round. Um, so we're going to be asking you some rapid fire questions. And if you could uh, let us know what you think in a, in a kind of a short way. 
So the first one is, um, what's one thing you had wish you had known earlier when you started your career? The importance of uh, treating people around you well. You know, that's one thing that, you know, if you come from the government background, you know, there you know, is so much rule bound, is so much procedure bound, so much regulation bound. And there are so many constraints around it that your success doesn't depend on what others think about you. This is this is a major, major bearing, you know, on building is an extended network of well-wishers and people, you see, who, you know, could be helpful to you, could be extension of you in your future career. If, if somebody wanted to pursue a, a path similar to yours, what sort of advice would you give to them? You know, I have, my career has taken so many twists and turns. I don't know why, unless you are forced to, why would you follow my career path? I would suggest that uh, if you want to do, if you want to become an investor, if you want to become a VC, you should start investing as soon as, as early as you can, because uh, there's no better way to learn than to do it. And the sooner you do it, uh, the better you off you are. I'm having so much fun being a VC. I, I sometimes uh, wonder why I, why I didn't know these things 20 years earlier. What are the best resources that have helped you um, along the way? I think it's just a network of people, just learning from people, having an eclectic kind of a mix of uh, people that that's what makes the difference. Uh, and from a wide variety of backgrounds and skills and professions. I think that has been the most helpful to me because sometimes, you see, you know, you get uh, wisdom from people is you, you know, completely unrelated to your field. What's some of the, uh, the best resources that have helped you along the way? Mine is just building a network of, uh, of relationship and friendships, right? I mean, I, I got involved, you see, I was the founding president of a nonprofit called Foundation for Excellence. We give scholarships to really, really talented, but extremely poor kids in India and help them become engineers and doctors. So for 27 years, I've been anyone who made money in Silicon Valley, chances are that they got a call from me asking them for money for this cause. And even if they didn't give me money, they at least associated me with something good. And that has been, you know, that has built a tremendous this thing of goodwill among Silicon Valley uh, Indians. And that has been a hugely value, uh, helpful to me. Can you maybe talk about one to three books that have really influenced your life? The first book that really had a tremendous impact on me was, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, this Nobel laureate called Bertrand Russell. He was a British philosopher. And I think he was one of the rare, uh, this thing, uh, who got two Nobel Prizes, one for peace and one for, I think, physics or something. So he has written a book. He has written a number of books. Uh, one of them was called In Praise of Idleness. And he talks about the value of uh, a rational outlook on life. And I was just in, uh, remember, I was in high school or the early years of college. And it was, you know, it was this whole how to think rationally and how to think based on evidence, you know, was a huge influence on me. I think uh, that transformed, you see, my, the way I looked at things, the way I looked at problems, the way I formed beliefs and acted on them. So that was one. But in my professional career, the book that has really influenced me a lot is, uh, is a book on marketing called Positioning by Reese and Trout. I don't know if you guys have read that book. It is one of the earliest books on positioning, the battle for your mind. This book was written, I think, in 50s or 60s. Uh, it's a very, very thin book, but it's a, it's a masterpiece. And uh, 
you know, that was the foundation of uh, a lot of thinking in marketing that had been built on top of that. But it was quite a revelation to me when I first read that. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or have lost your focus temporarily, what do you what do you do? No, there are two things, right? Whenever, whenever I have a hard time sort of concentrating and stuff, I, I don't do meditation regularly. But anytime you see I have that kind of a challenge, I sit down you see, and meditate. I meditate for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, however long I can do. And I do it for as long as until I get back into that, that high performance mode again. But, you know, fundamentally throughout this thing, anytime I have sort of been into this kind of funk thing, I sit down and try to figure out to see where I want to be two years from today. And I think that really frames how I should be spending my time today. What do I want to see happen in two years from today and then work backwards from there? If you can clearly identify where you want to be and what you want to be in two years, then a lot of these things is like you can work out the details and you know they all then it's just a matter of details. So uh, this is a fun question. Uh, what do you spend a silly amount of money on? Oh, <laughs> I did. It used to be books, but I don't read as much books these days. Uh, but uh, travel, really, you know. So this this COVID has been pretty bad f- from that standpoint. Otherwise, I used to make about uh, say about seven to eight international trips a year. And uh, what what's uh, sort of piqued your curiosity right now? What are you digging into? You know, there are a lot of things that I'm curious about. I think uh, and that's why I read a lot. I, I read a lot because I'm curious about a lot of different things. But one thing that has sustained my interest over a long period of time is this this whole intersection of uh, linguistics, archaeology, Indology, and all of these things put together, genetics, about uh, the history and this thing of Harappa uh, uh, Indus Valley civilization. And the whole question about, uh, you know, it has a very profound thing, implication for the idea of India. What India was, you know, 3000 BC, right? So it's about 5000 years ago. So what was the what was the thought process in India at that time? Who were those people? And uh, are there any implications, you see, for the continuity of that kind of civilization, that kind of a thought process? So that thing has sustained my interest, you see, over a long period of time. And I do a lot of reading. And when I go to India, I see I visit those uh, those uh, Harappa civilization sites. So that has sustained my interest for much longer than any other subject has. Given, you know, how much is currently on your plate, how do you manage your time? Does work-life balance really exist? You know, it's interesting. People who have constraints on, people have other constraints. I think for them, that this thing is very different. When I had young kids and when I had, you see, you know, sort of parents, you see, you know, concern about elderly parents and stuff. And when I had a boss, this was a very, very different answers. Luckily, I don't have any of those constraints now. The kids are grown up. My parents, you see, are no longer there. And uh, I don't have a boss. So I don't know how much of my answer is going to be relevant to people. Uh, this is, uh, I get to I get to decide my priority and I get to decide, you say, how I spend my time. But I'll tell you one thing, that if you're doing something that you really like, it doesn't look like work. And last question, uh, outside of, you know, outside of travel, what is your guilty pleasure? Eating. I love to eat. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I just came back from from New York, and uh, 
And there was a call before I went there. I hadn't seen my son in a long time because of COVID. And both of us got vaccinated. We said, let's go to New York and meet uh, Asim and his, his girlfriend. And so Asim was uh, talking to his mother, you see, and uh, on, she was on speakerphone where he was saying that, okay, we are having breakfast here and lunch here and dinner here and stuff. And, and so I, you know, I said, hopefully we are doing something in between these meals also. But uh, he's, he's, he's a lot like me where, uh, where the focus is, if you go to a new place, focus is on figuring out what are the best places to eat. And we decide that first before we decide what else to do. Amazing. Great. Thank you so much, Frank. That was great. Yeah, thank you. Bye.